Hello and welcome to the Apprentice Track podcast. It's been a while, hasn't it? Um, we've had a really good few months in the Apprentice Track year and we're excited to share some of our talks from the last few months over the coming weeks. And we're kicking off with a recording taken from December of last year and this is a brilliant talk given by Julia Weber who works in the leadership team for 24-7 Prayer and is Director of Spiritual Formation at Emmaus Road in Guildford. And we're talking about what it means to have a rule of life. How we spend our time is how we spend our lives. This is a super helpful and very challenging um, talk. It's an amazing invitation to a life that orders itself around the things that really matter. All right, let's get into it. Twenty twenty has been unprecedented, you could say, and many people have been. Um, we've just been focusing on prayer for the last couple of months, and just wondered what you've been learning about prayer in this, yeah. this year, and just just how this pandemic's affected you and and your prayer life and relationship with God, and what you've been learning. Yeah, I'm learning. I need to pray with other people. I don't know about you guys, but I'm like, a, I, I have like good days and bad days. Is anybody like this emotionally in COVID besides me? You're all far more emotionally secure. So I'm like, woo, you know, and so on my good days, I'm like, yeah, I can do anything. And on my bad days, I'm like, I get, you know, you just, I, I just say my get up and go, got up and left. And often that's how it feels in COVID. And so for me, praying with other people has been the saving grace. So we've got regular prayer rhythms that we do together online on Zoom. And I drag my sorry butt there in the mornings, whether I want to pray or not. And I'm like, you know, I'm here. People who are in that boat this morning. <laughs> yeah, when I have words, other people have got words, right? And when I feel like crap, somebody else is feeling a bit better and maybe I feel a little bit better at the call and I, and, I, and I always feel better after having done it. So for me, COVID has taught me that praying with other people yeah. is vital for my spiritual health. COVID has taught me that having a, a rhythm of prayer, like it's just kind of built into my day at a specific time and I actually shape my day around it instead of trying to fit prayer around my life uh, as serves me far better than trying to tack prayer on the edges um, and then finally, praying scripture, like if, if I just focused on all the problems in the world that I had to pray about right now, I would be the most depressed person that you could ever imagine. But if I actually look to Jesus and if I actually look at maybe some of the prayers that Paul's praying in his epistles and, 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 and if I take the Psalms and start, it just changes my emotional chemistry. And all of a sudden I'm praying from a very different place and I feel far more energized at the end. So some things I'm learning. So helpful. Final question, and it's a bit, it is a big one. Um, but you're part of the 24-7 team, which has this unique lens that sort of from a global perspective and just wondered if there's anything that, that you're sensing as a team globally that, that God is doing. The answer might be, what a ridiculous question. No, move on. Well, but. I know. Everybody's like, what's God doing on the planet? And I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so from my, from my tiny little vantage point, what I've noticed, what we've noticed in the 24-7 world is that people are, pr are praying more than they've ever prayed before. Um, and I think that's just because we're surrounded by unsolvable problems. Mm -hmm. 
before be like, oh, I can totally fix that. And now we're like, I am surrounded by all of these unfixables. I have no control over this environment. I need to reach out to a power greater than myself. And so even last, I think it was March or April, the, the, the rise in COVID um, numbers globally, there was this corresponding rise in Google searches on prayer. And so people all over the world, Christian or not, were like, we got to figure out this prayer thing. And uh, so the Google stats were fascinating. Um, in the 24-7 world, the demand for the prayer stuff that we did just went went like crazy. And uh, so we we helped churches do weeks of 24-7. So that's tripled, you know, this year than it has in previous years. Uh, we started a little daily devotional prayer app called Lectio 365. I don't know if any of you guys use it. We were super excited last last December. We're like, we have 5,000 users. We made it. We're like, we're a proper app. We're influential. <laughs> and now we're like 86,000 users and just spiking up every month. So just people are looking for ways to connect to God. Um, and, uh, and so we're just seeing a hunger and, and, and a realization that we can't fix this and that we need somebody bigger than us to help us fix what's going on. Or at least sustain us in the midst. Yeah. People haven't come across that app. It is superb, really, really helpful. Um, Lectio 365. Wonderful. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in, well, Duncan is going to put you in breakout rooms. And I want you to have a little chat about what I've put in the chat here. Think of a goal. We're going to do three. Three will help us remember. Think of a goal that you would like to accomplish in three years. So one goal that you'd like to accomplish in three years what are three practical things that you can do regularly? Keyword practical, other keyword regular. And then what are three things that might get in the way? So I'd love for you guys to, I hope you had a good time in your groups. Uh, thinking through the three questions are the, it's what I'd love for you to do is pop in the chat your goal for the next three years. What's the thing you'd like to do in three years? So everybody throw in the chat and I wanna see them all. All right, what do we got? Travel, write a book. Read the whole Bible properly. Woo, finish PhD. Better curriculum. Release some music. Nice. Do a job you enjoy more. Hospitality. Be better at silence. Here we go. Small one. Revival in Nottingham. Woohoo. Volunteer for charity. Triathlon. Daily pattern of prayer. Another triathlon. All right. For the studies. Pioneering. Oh, record an album. Embrace change better. Nice. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. Excellent. Great goals. Okay, so now I want you to write down what are the things that will get in the way? Oh, being inflexible. Cool. Insightful. So what else have we got? 
Finances, yeah. Apathy. Nice honesty in the room. The tyranny of the urgent. Busyness, fear of opinions. Boredom, laziness, busyness, self-confidence. Busyness again. Fear, risk averse, just a bit hard. Winter, yeah. Not keeping a team on board or in the loop. Lack of confidence, logistics, patience, need patience. Get distracted. Want to control boredom. Interesting. It's interesting looking at all of those, hey? What you want to do and what gets in the way. I remember a story of a, a famous American evangelist called Dwight uh, El Moody. And, and he said, you know, Dwight, what is your biggest opponent to ministry? And he said, oh, that's easy. Dwight El Moody. <laughs> we are our own worst enemies um, in lots and lots of ways. We're going to talk a little bit today about uh, a rule of life uh, and, and how that can be helpful for us to get from to get where we want to go and um, also to help us overcome the obstacles and the barriers that we experience along the way. I'm learning English, you guys. You'll be very proud of me. I, I learn new words every day. And it's funny, when I go to different regions of English, I then have to learn other new words. <laughs> I remember the first time somebody prayed for me in England and they said, oh, Jill, God is chuffed with you. And I was like, chuffed? Is that, is he mad? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know what, the, <laughs> so I had to go look up chuffed and then I realized that it was, it was a good thing. And so that was great. I learned a new word yesterday. Do you know what we call these in Canada? These are clippers because they clip things. That seems, that sounds like a logical term. You, you know what you call them here in the, in the, in the UK? Sequitur. Like, what is that? What is that even? I, you know, they're clippers. They clip. But, <laughs> but it's a handy little thing to, to have. Um, back, at, back at home in Canada, I had this massive rose bush. And uh, there was this spot right in front of our community house that had, um, uh, that had really sandy soil and lots of sun. So we had this rose bush and it was just, it would just go crazy. It would grow like crazy and, and, uh, and then it would grow to a certain height. And then all the roses, big red roses would come out all at the same time. And it was so heavy. It would just sort of flop forward onto our driveway pad. So there was just sort of this like a waterfall of rose bush that would sort of sprawl all over the place. And then it would, it was because it was on our front porch, it was right by the stairs coming up the porch. And so then it started taking over the stairs. And so people coming up the stairs to our house would get tangled in it on the way in. And uh, I, I, uh, I decided to call it Audrey, which was after the, the man-eating plant and little shop of hers. <laughs> So we had Audrey the Rosebush. And um, anyway, she just was, was a little bit out of control. She just she was just floppy and sloppy and sprawling. And um, I wonder sometimes how much our lives are like that. I wonder if you feel sometimes like your life is a little bit floppy and sloppy and sprawling and just kind of spreading out in every direction all over the place. And without any kind of shape or any kind of form. And so there's a, a great little book. If you haven't read the book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. I say it's required reading for anybody between the ages of 18 and 75. Um, and uh, uh, really super book. But he talks about um, this thing, which I call uh, the object of mass distraction. Right? So, and it's good old iPhone. And... Um, they did a survey. So I want you to put in the chat, 
How many times does the average iPhone user touch their iPhone in a day? Best guess. Put it in the chat. People who read the book are not allowed to put an answer in. How many times? Oh, we got 250, 250, 170, 800, 1500. We got 150, 1500, 238, 1600, 354, 93,000. <laughs> Craig, you have a problem there, buddy, maybe. <laughs> 356. All right, here we go. The average iPhone user touches their iPhone. Wait for it. 2,600 times a day, 2,600 times a day, unless you are a millennial or younger. Is anybody a millennial or younger? Put up your hand. A millennial or younger, was that 35-ish and younger? All right, then you are double. So you touch, <laughs> Mike, not a millennial. Anyway, you touch your iPhone 5,000 or more times a day sometimes are floppy and sloppy and sprawling. And in this study, what was fascinating was that people had no idea how much they were using their iPhone. They, they just hadn't, they didn't have a clue. They're like, yeah, 300, no problem. 150, I'm sure that's tops. And uh, probably the best and the worst app that's come out in the last couple of years has been uh, screen time. Does anybody have screen time on your, on your iPad or on your iPhone? <laughs> Not only tells you how long you've been on it, but also the breakdown of your usage. Probably one of the best discipleship practices you guys could have is get in a small group and get honest with one another about your screen time. Open up your screen time app and share it with each other. That would be like, ow, 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 ow. Because <laughs> we don't realize, we don't know sort of what, you know, it's just because, I mean, my age, we're not digital natives, but, but those of you who, you know, weren't born in the ice ages like me, you know, the next generation down, I mean, my daughter had her first cell phone at 10. You know, so she's a digital native. She has grown up online. And so we don't even notice. It's just part and parcel of how we interface with the world. Uh, but it can, it can uh, pull us away sometimes. Stephen Covey, who's a time life management guy, he once said, we get stuck in the thick of thin things. We get stuck in the thick of thin things. And so I, I actually know one of my, I kind of, I sort of have things that I watch for when I'm not, not doing well in COVID, when I'm struggling. And one of my tells, one of the warning lights on the dashboard of my soul is mindless scrolling through Instagram or Facebook. When I'm not even, my eyes are just kind of glazed and I'm just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, you know, and, and um, yeah, we can get stuck in the thick of thin things. There was a guy called Paul Zimbardo. And he did some recent research in a book called The Demise of Guys. And it was about the crisis of masculinity in Western culture. And, uh, and his studies concluded that the average guy spends 10,000 hours playing video games by the age of 21. So 10,000 hours on Mario Kart or you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever, you know, what you could do with 10,000 hours, you could get a master's degree. You could become a concert pianist, <laughs> right? There's a lot that you could do with 10,000 hours, but the average, the average male is spending 10,000 hours before the age of 21 on video games. Now, if, if God's calling him to be a fighter pilot, 
awesome. He's set. He's got the hand-eye coordination or an astronaut. He's got everything he needs. But for the rest of us, might not be the best use of our time. So our lives can be floppy and sloppy and sprawling. And how we spend our time is how we spend our lives. A lot of you guys put in the list, like in our, my little small group, it's like time. You know, I've got something that I want to do in three years, but where am I going to find the time? How on earth am I going to manage that? And so with, with Audrey, the rose bush that was floppy and sloppy and sprawling, Kirk said, you got to, my husband, Kirk, you know, he'd come, he'd come home and he'd have like rose bush scars on his arms because Audrey would clutch at him as he climbed up the stairs and, and stuff. He said, you got to do something about her. <laughs> you know, got to deal with this rose bush. She's just out of control. And so I took my sequiturs and, uh, and, I, and I cut her back a little bit. And I took some rope and uh, I didn't really have a proper trellis because it was just on the front of my porch, but my porch had sort of a, a railing thing. And I used railing as a, as a trellis and I sort of tied Audrey up on the railing. So I gave her a little bit of support. I cut her back a little bit. And all of a sudden this mess of a bush that had been dragging in the dust was standing straight and was like way more beautiful and way more productive and was really shaped and supported in the way that it needed to be so that it could be what it was created to be. In uh, in the tradition of the early church, one of the experiments that my friends and I have been experimenting with over the last uh, probably 15 years or so, and one of the treasures of our ancient tradition in the church has been this thing that we call a rule of life. And uh, the Latin word for rule is regula, It means stick, like a stick, like a measure, like a ruler, like a measuring stick. It also means trellis, like you would tie up a rose bush to or a plant to. And and so there's a a teacher, a spiritual formation teacher that I, I, I follow in the States called Ruth Haley Barton. She defines a rule of life this way. A rule of life is a way of ordering our lives, bringing shape to our lives, around values, practices, and relationships. So three things, values, practices, relationships. Ordering our life around values, practices, and relationships that keep us open and available to God for the work of spiritual transformation that only God can bring about. So it's not about doing more, better, faster, bigger, stronger. It's about how can I actually shape my life to create more room for God to do the things that only God can do so that God can shape me. And so simply put, a rule of life provides structure and support and space for our growing and for our flourishing and for the transformation not only of my life, but of the lives of people I trust. So here's a few things that a rule of life is not. A rule of life is not a tick box to-do list. How many of you have done your morning quiet time? You're like, tick, tick the box. Particularly like Lectio 365, it's only 10 minutes long. I can get it in. Tick the box. (laughs) I've got one friend. She does it while she's straightening her hair every morning. She straightens her hair unless it's Lectio 365. And uh, so rule of life isn't a tick box thing so that you can um, just knock it off your to-do list. And a rule of life is not a rule to measure yourself by or other people by. 
It's like, oh, you do Lectio 365 as your daily devotional app? That's only 10 minutes. I actually do Bible in a year app, which is like way longer. So I obviously must be much more spiritual than you are. Right? A rule of life is not a measuring stick to measure yourself and other people by. And probably most importantly, a rule of life is not a big stick to beat yourself up with. Right? How many of you, I know that you guys have some set practices that you're doing as part of this internship, this discipleship program. So how many of you, when you forget to do the thing that you committed to do, want to take that stick and go, you know, <laughs> I forgot it again. I didn't do it again. And oh, you know, we want to beat ourselves up, right? If we, 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 we set these high expectations and then we don't meet them and we fail and we just get mad at ourselves. So rule of life is not a stick to beat yourself up with. So rule of life gives us a bit of structure a bit of support, a bit of space, helping to make room for God and helping to make room for love, helping to make room for loving God and being loved by God, making room for us to abide in him and to be fruitful. So how many of you right now in this moment are entirely satisfied with how much you are experiencing God in your life? You're like, yep, good, sewed it up. Or let me word it another way. Is there anybody in the room who has a longing to experience more of God than you're experiencing right now? Anybody? Yeah, one or two. That's why you signed up, right? You wouldn't have signed up for this program if you weren't hungry for something more, for something else than what you were experiencing. And uh, yeah, and so, you know, my whole life, I've been looking for a way of life that works. <laughs> my whole life, I've been looking for, you know, some kind of structure. When I became a teenager and, and, uh, and my, I, I grew up, my family, I, my maiden name was Essex, and we jokingly call us the Essex endomorphs. I have an uncle who is as wide as he is tall. And so everybody in my family, except my mother, we're just kind of round and snuggly and lar- larger. <laughs> We're larger. This is my biology. It's what I've got. And so as I, in my teen years, when my waistline began to sprawl a bit, I decided I wanted a rule of life. I didn't call it that. I called it a diet. I called it exercise. I joined the rugby team. I was terrible. I, <laughs> well, no, I wasn't completely terrible. I wasn't very fast, but I could hit really hard. And, uh, you know, and so that was my rule of life because I wanted to, to figure out how to do this thing. And, um, it was my first attempt at a rule of life. And then when I was in my 20s, I knew that I was called to leadership. I knew there was a calling in my life to lead other people. And so I started reading all of these books on leadership and time life management and uh, how do you lead yourself. And, and I realized this, if, you, if I felt called to be a leader, that 80% of leadership is leading yourself. 80% of leadership is leading yourself. And if I can't lead myself, who's going to want to follow me? And how can I lead other people? And so that took me on a quest. And I went, I found these time life management gurus, Stephen Covey, some of you older people in the room, you're like, Stephen Covey, having seven habits of highly effective people and, and all this stuff. And, and I, I learned back then in my 20s, I could actually shape my my schedule, my weekly schedule around principles and values and priorities. And then, you know, so that was one, one phase of it. I didn't call it a rule of life. I called it time life management. That's what I called it. 
And then, uh, and then I started in new monasticism back in 2001 and discovered that, oh, this thing that I'd been trying to figure out and looking at from different angles in my life is actually a thing that the church has been doing for almost 2000 years. And there's some things I could learn about it. And um, I love this Matthew 11, 18 to 30. You guys know this one. Are you tired? Worn out. Eugene Peterson does a great paraphrase, right? Are you tired? Anybody tired in the room? Put up your hand. Are you tired? Anybody tired? Yeah, yeah. Anybody worn out? <laughs> and you don't have to put your hand up in this one necessarily. Burnt out on religion. Are you tired? Worn out? Burnt out on religion. This is Jesus talking. He says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. Anybody want to recover your life? This is a promise Jesus gives us. Come to me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a winsome invitation. I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> I'll sign up for that, right? I, thought, I am interested in that. You know, I can rest. There's rest implicit in that. Walking with Jesus, working with him, not working for him, working with him, walking with him, watching how he does stuff. And then I love this unforced rhythms of grace. Because I think people bristle against the idea of a rule of life because they, they don't like that word rules, right? Rules. You know, everybody's like, I don't want any rules. And, uh, but if you think about it, of unforced rhythms of grace, just a little shape, a little structure to help you flourish. Um, keep company with me. So again, the proximity of Jesus in his presence, making space for God to do what only God can do, and learning how to live freely and lightly. That's how I want to live. That's how I'm trying to learn how to live. I'm, I'm not good at it all the time. I am a type A personality. Anybody who knows me, <laughs> knows me, it's just like, Jill is the ever ready bunny. It's like, let's do this. Let's build this. Come on guys, let's go. Right. And, uh, and I actually once I was, I have a, I have a coach cause I, my work is quite extensive. I have an executive coach and she's like, Jill, <laughs> she says, People are going to hurt themselves trying to keep up with you. So just be, you know, you just have to, you're not normal. You're not normal. And so you need to know that you're not normal because what you think is normal is not normal. And so, um, and, and so you have to realize that so that you can lead people well, because they'll try and do what you do and they're just built differently and they can't. So, um, so the secret of the easy yoke coming back to the rule of life Um. What would happen if we lived like Jesus did? What could happen? I think most of us in this Zoom room, if it would be fair to say, anybody want to be more like Jesus? Anyone? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> We'd love to have his joy. We'd love to have peace. 
there's a lot of talk right now. They're using this phrase, a non-anxious presence. How many of you would like to be a non-anxious presence in your workspace or in your school? How many of you want to be a conduit of the love and the healing of God? We want to be like Jesus. And uh, there's this lady in my congregation. She's totally amazing. I just love it. She is a triathlete. We had two people who want to do triathlons, right? So here you go. Her name's Nikki. She's a triathlete. She must have like 15% body fat. She's just lean as a whippet. And she's just a beast. Like if I, I got friends who do who do uh, racing and you know, if, if Nikki shows up, some people just walk away. <laughs> like nobody's going to win the race, but Nikki, like, it's just so not, just don't even bother, you know, and she gets up at five in the morning and she's, she's got these bikes where you're uh, like, it's in your, in your garage and you bike, but it's programmed to do hills and stuff. But not only are you doing bikes on hills and stuff, you're like, there's a whole community of other bike people. And my bike is magically talking to your bike through the magic of electronica and, and, uh, and so they're doing these bike races at five in the morning and she's just smashing them all. And she's totally inspiring, running, swimming, cycling. She's completely unbeatable. And, and at home, well, I, I, love to, I love to look at her Instagram feed at home while I'm sitting on my couch, snuggled up in my quilt, eating a bag full of crisps, thinking, man, I want to be just like Nikki. I want to be just like her. So many of us want the life of Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, but we don't want to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. I have a friend who's got a <laughs> this crazy bucket list. I was painting with a friend one day. He was about 25. I was like, hey, Tim, what's on your bucket list? What do you want to do? And he said, I want to raise the dead. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> he said, yeah. And not like 20 minutes dead but like really dead, dead, like dead for three days, dead, <laughs> like stinking already dead. I want to raise the dead. I'm like, wow. Okay. Thanks, Tim. That's quite the bucket list item. But you know, so we want, we want to see miracles. We want to see God sized things, right? We want to be like Jesus, but the, the lifestyle of Jesus, I'm not so sure about that. By lifestyle, I mean, routines and rhythms that make up our daily existence, the way we organize our time, the way we spend our money. And uh, because I think the reality is, well, I've certainly learned that um, I have to live on purpose. I can't live on autopilot. I can't let my life um unfold by accident because we are not in a neutral environment. We're not in a neutral environment. We are being spiritual formation happens every minute of every day. We are being shaped and formed. We're being shaped and formed by our news feeds. We're being shaped and formed by the algorithms, right? We're being shaped and formed by consumeristic culture. We're being shaped and formed all the time. So we have to decide is, uh, are we going to allow our culture to deform us? Or were we going to add a measure of an intention to our lives so that God can transform us? Depends. Do we really want to be more like Jesus? So we can't live life by accident. We can't live life on autopilot. We have to live life on purpose. This year he turned 50. I know I don't look like it, but I did. 
And, uh, <laughs> and I'm becoming increasingly aware of my limitations. I am a finite human being. I'm fragile. I get tired. We only have so much time and only so much energy. So my question to you is, if you are limited, and if you have a limited time and limited energy, limited attention, limited finance, how are you going to use it? How are you going to spend it? I want to live a life that's congruent with my deepest desires. There's these moments. Jesus does this all the time. It's, it's just astounding. I love it. He confronts people. There's several times in the gospel stories where he looks people in the eye and says, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? What would you do? What would you do if you found yourself face to face, nose to nose with Jesus and him just looking at you saying, all right, all right, Matt, what do you want? What's your deepest, most authentic longing and desire? What if Jesus were to say that to you? What do you want me to do for you? Now let's take a minute, actually. We'll do this as a little spiritual exercise. I want you to close your eyes. We're going to use our sanctified imagination. The monastics have been doing it for years. They get in these gospel stories and they just put themselves in the story. So imagine, as it were, and I'll paraphrase it because I'm sure you're familiar with it. Eyes closed. Imagine you are Bartimaeus by the side of the road. You can't see anything. There's a lot of noise. And you know that God is walking by. And we know from the story that in that space, he shouts. He's like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and uh, which is not a very British thing to do. <laughs> and eventually he gets their attention and Jesus' attention. And they pull him up and they put him right in front of Jesus. And he's face to face, nose to nose. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? So imagine yourself standing there in front of him. What's the longing? What's the desire? What do you want Jesus to do for you? It's a good question to sit with maybe over the Christmas vacation. What do you want me to do for you? When I was in my 20s, I wrote a life mission statement. I answered the question. And 30 years later, it's still my life mission statement. It's amazing that it's lasted 30 years. Here it is, my mission statement. I want my life to be characterized by the presence and the personality and the purposes of God. That was my answer to that question. So I wrote it on a sign. I want my life to be characterized by the presence of God. And I want to be one of those people that they go, oh, she's an ignorant person. I'm actually not formally educated. She's an ignorant woman, but she's been with Jesus. I want my life to be characterized by his presence. Personality, I want my character to be like his. And then I want to be about my father's business the way that he was. I put it on a sign. And then when I, after I got married, my husband changed the sign. Instead of, he put a little post-it note over it. And instead of life, he put like wife. I want my wife to be characterized. <laughs> 
But in order to do that, in order to grow in that, I have to live on purpose. Jesus did it. He had a way of life that works. Here's some, here's what's part of Jesus' rule of life. Without, where is it in the strictures? In the scriptures. What's implied, we see it as how they actually live their life. Jesus had a, a healthy dose of margin. So margin is the space between our workload and our limits. So here's the job I have to do. Here's my capacity. The thing in the middle is the margin, right? Most of us live like this. Right? We're living beyond our limits because we're superhuman, right? Of course, you know, <laughs> we don't have margin in our lives. Jesus had a healthy dose of margin. Jesus was interruptible. People were interrupting Jesus all the time. Could you imagine being Jesus's PA? Like you're trying to get him to a meeting and all these people are stopping him on the road. It's like, just, just leave him alone. I have to get him to the synagogue, right? He was so interruptible. That meant he had margin. He had space between his load and his limits. He had room. Jesus would regularly get up early to go to a quiet place to be with God. So if Jesus, if the son of God himself had to practice solitude and silence, how on earth do we think we can manage without it? Jesus got away to a quiet place to be with God. Sometimes he would even go over where, um, for overnight for a few weeks at a time, stepping away from the front lines of his life to gather himself to God. I'm really excited. I'm doing a three-day silent retreat in January, in the first week of January. No phone, no talking, nothing. Just me and God. I'm a little nervous, but it's going to be good. I think it'll be good. I hope it'll be good. <laughs> Jesus, I love this. Part of Jesus' rule of life. He had lots of long meals with friends, creating space for in-depth conversations about the things that really mattered. How's that for something to put in your rule of life? Anybody want that? I'm down with that. Lots of long, there was even wine, <laughs> right? He prioritized his friendships, his relationships, talking about the stuff that really matters. He even went to parties. Jesus practiced Sabbath on a weekly basis, every single day week. And Jesus lived simply. His life had room for God and for others for love. He lived his life on purpose. He knew who he was. He knew whose he was and he knew where he was going. And he shaped a lifestyle to get him to get him there. So this is the experiment. Um, when you're, when you're, so this is the why of a rule of life. The how of a rule of life is actually super easy. It's not the how. You can go look up rule of life or whatever on, you know, uh, Google, but, but it's the why. It's the knowing why it matters. It's the knowing why it's important. It's knowing that it's a life giving invitation for us. Um, yeah, so things in your rule of life you might consider uh, rest. I know a lot of us, when we talked about the things we wanted to do three years from now, um, uh, we're like, yeah, but I'm too busy, right? How on earth am I going to do that? When people want to want to create a rule of life for themselves and think about values and practices and relationships, usually what people do, here's, uh, here's my quick little tips and we'll go into questions in five minutes, but people are, they want to write a a list like I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and this and this and this and this and then I'm gonna pray three times a day and then I'm gonna go like give a homeless person a sandwich every Tuesday or whatever you know you just kind of make your list of all of your idealistic aspiration 
And then it becomes this huge burdensome thing. And then you fail and you're like, well, that didn't work. So what I say to people, if you're thinking about creating a rule of life, the first thing you need to do is you need to look at what's already going on in your life. You need to do an inventory. How do I actually spend my time right now? Go look at your your, uh, screen time app and sigh (laughs) or whatever, right? And I actually schedule my calendar very um, specifically so that I can go back and look at how I've spent my time. So inventory, what am I already doing? And then the next thing to do, so number one, inventory. Number two, then you need to subtract things. Because 99% of you are already doing too much. So you can't add space for anything else because there is no space for anything else. So you need to look at how you're spending your time and say, all right, what really needs to be here? And then I would say the third thing is to pay attention to invitation. And by that, I mean, what's God talking to you about these days? What's he, inviting, what's he inviting you into? What's sparking in your heart right now? I know one of the folks in my group was like, ah, oh, I just, I would really love to volunteer for a charity. All right. So something's being stirred. So you got to pay attention to the stirrings in your soul and not just a list of, oh, wouldn't it be nice? But the stuff that comes down from your gut, from deep inside of you, the longing, just say, ah, oh, what's, 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 what's that all about? And how might I make room for that? There you go. So number one, what was it? Inventory. And number two, subtract. Number three, pay attention to longing and invitation. Uh, I think that's all I want to say. So open to questions, reflections, rebuttals. Uh, yeah. Um, just a question around personality and what advice would you give to somebody who's naturally, um, I guess, to use Myers-Briggs a lot more in the P, doesn't naturally sort of um, engage with structure and that sort of thing. And then, yes, the other side of that spectrum, what advice would you give to people who can totally miss the point and just have structure as the as a bit of an idol? It's like, I have an awesome structure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, well, I think part of it is personality. Part of it is how we're enculturated right now. I think we're enculturated to be resistant to any kind of external structure, right? We, that's just, we don't want to, like, you're not going to tell me what to do, right? (laughs) We just don't want, we just don't want that, right? That's how our, that's our fiercely independent culture that is uh, where we just, we just want our autonomy, really. And, um, but part of it is too some personalities like my daughter. My daughter is a high. What is it? P. She's like she's like a forest fairy. She just kind of floats around her life. Right? She just goes this way and that way. And so I think for me the the thing that's that can be helpful as you think about a rule of life, as as we defined it, what was it was values, practices, and relationships. So if you're thinking through like oh my gosh I don't want to have like all these practices and and just just um, I want to just pay attention to that word practice right now. We call them, you know, we, we uh, they've been called spiritual disciplines, but I, I got two problems with that word, those words. The first problem is with the word spiritual. And the second problem is with 
the word disciplines. <laughs> and, uh, and I got a problem with the word spiritual because then you think that some things are sacred and some things are not sacred. So I got folks who are like, I can't go in a prayer room, like, you know, or in a pr- like a prayer meeting. I just feel like I'm shriveling up and dying in that space. I'm in this little enclosed space, but, but you know what? Put me on a bicycle on a, on a country road in Surrey. And I'm like with God, like I'm totally. And so, but, but I won't go cycling because that's not spiritual. I should probably be in a prayer meeting. Right. And so we've got this really weird misunderstanding of the sacredness of all of life. And so, um, and then disciplines, nobody likes the word discipline, right? You just think of somebody hitting you with a ruler or whatever. And so spiritual practices. So our, our formational practices actually is a great word. So things that shape and form us and things we practice. And the nice thing about practicing something is you don't have to get it right. You're just practicing it. You're just experimenting it with, you're just trying something. So to come back to the, the, our dear peas and, uh, and, uh, um, if it's values and practices and relationships, if the practices bit feels like constraining, what about digging into values and exploration of what are the things I love? What are the things that matter? What are the things that are really meaningful for me? And so that might be a way in to help, you know, make it more appealing and accessible and then relationships. Right. So what I think for me, one thing I've I've really, really learned is the, the value of a common rule of life. And so, you know, I'm part of a religious order and we have a common rule of life. Now, it looks different in each of our individual lives, but we've got some shared values and some shared rhythms and some shared practices that I embody in my own unique way in my own unique setting. But there's something about having like a group of people that you're on a journey with and you're trying stuff together so that it doesn't become all task oriented but it's about being being friends, trying stuff together, which feels really different. Thanks for listening in. I hope you found that helpful and encouraging as we go on this journey together. If you want to keep up to date with what's going on, do follow us at The Apprentice Track, all one word on Instagram. See you next time.